room by themselves and they're left with nothing but their own thoughts to keep them company kind of thing, right? So um, there's that. With my clients, you know, I sort of start in the same place, which is just listening. You know, um, I want to do everything I, I possibly can to let go of all the thoughts and ideas I have about what this person should or should not be doing, how they should or should not be showing up. And I want to just experience the person for who they are. You know, the one thing that we know about all kinds of therapy and coaching is that the most effective therapy and coaching really boils down to one thing, which is unconditional regard. Like, can I hold space for this person in a way where I'm fully, deeply, truly present and I'm listening to them and not to my ideas of them. I'm not imposing any judgments on them. I'm not um, getting in the way. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans with Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our amazing podcast. This is where we reveal the top 1% of business concepts and systems and processes to scale eight and nine figure businesses. We interview top level eight and nine figure CEOs, business owners, and amazing TEDx speakers like David Meltzer. We got Nick Cavuto, Pascal Bachman, and so many others. And if you feel like this resonates with you, please share this with your friend, your family, and make sure you impact them as well because we're trying to spread the message on those that do not know how to scale eight, nine figure businesses and talking higher level business concepts. So guys, remember, enjoy the episode and be uncommon if you can. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. I'm your host, Christian D. Evans, and this next guest has been endorsed by Oprah Magazine, Vanessa Williams, and many others in his first book, Happiness from the inside out. He's a celebrity endorsed and critically acclaimed and has been translated into various other languages, including Chinese. In addition to serving as a TV host and producer on Good Morning La La Land, a consulting producer and on-camera expert for Mind Your Hat Business on OWN Own Network and a celebrity love coach for Famously Single on E-Network, this man has been a guest expert for Access Hollywood, the Today Show, Good Morning Show, the Good Morning America, the Balancing Act, CBS Early Show, and magazine like GQ, Self, Health, Cosmopolitan, Glamour, Upscale, and many others. His coaching clients include individuals from all walks of life, including entrepreneurs, senior executives, professional athletes, popular entertainers, and everyday people. Please welcome my next guest, the one and only, the one and founding, the expert and executive coach, inspirational speaker, Robert Mack. How are you doing today, Robert? I'm fantastic, man. I love the intro. Boy, I got to come back here more often. <laughs> <laughs> well, Robert, I'm very excited about diving into this because, again, you you have immense, immense experience in so many different things. And one of the things I found very interesting about, you know, your coaching, you work with very top tier individuals. And what I find so interesting, Robert, and, and you don't have to mention any names, but I'd love to just dive into maybe some things that you have discovered, because I think sometimes definitely mid tier and low tier individuals. And, you know, we, we all and I, I, like, I hate to say that that way, but I mean, just just for this um, iteration purposes we we put them on a pedestal and we look at them and they're like wow they have no flaws they have no nothing and we understand that they have their own insight struggle or whatever and uh, again i don't want to dive into like obviously the names or anything but i'd love to just you know get your response to people that you've worked with some very high caliber very successful achieve amazing things and influence amazing people and what have you seen in working with them some things that constantly that they struggle with internally yeah so all people suffer i mean that's the first thing everybody needs to be reminded of. Um, all people suffer. It doesn't matter how much money you make or don't make, how much fame or popularity you have or don't have. It doesn't matter how successful you've been. Um, everybody has their struggles and challenges and uh, trials and tribulations. Um, that being said, everybody has their wins and successes too. So I would say that, you know, my executive coaching practice in particular in the last 20 years 
the top three themes for most folks have been number one, executive presence. So everybody's wanted to be more charismatic, be more persuasive and influential, um, whether it's in their tiny little small town or it's uh, across the globe. Um, you know, and that's true, just as true of the entrepreneur as it is the athlete um, or entertainer. I'd say that number two, in terms of the executive coaching sort of themes or topics, it's probably managing workload and workflow. So everybody wants to be more strategic, more intentional, so they can achieve, um, accomplish and acquire more with less, right? With less time, energy and effort. Um, and the third is just dealing with or managing difficult people or having or navigating difficult conversations, right? I'd say those three themes are pretty fascinating because it doesn't matter um, who I'm talking to, they generally come up in the conversation at some point in time. And of course, for me, since I'm a positive psychology expert and sort of essentially a happiness expert, um, it all kind of comes back to the ways in which we can all be much, much lazier, but smarter in terms of achieving, accomplishing, acquiring, or experiencing what we most want in our lives. Let's dive into that. So I'm intrigued and I appreciate kind of, you know, obviously that was very, very like just fluent. I love what you said. It just dove right into it. So I'd love to kind of dive into each one of those uh, focus points, if you will, you know, executive presence, uh, charisma and influential. I think we all want to kind of unpack that a little bit further. So if you would, I'd love to hear a little bit more on that. Yeah, for sure. So I think of executive presence as really the three P's or the three C's. Um, the first P is just presence, right? So that's keeping your mind where your body is. Um, that's the way the actor Vince Vaughn puts it, uh, which I just love. That's the entry level, sort of like the introductory level. There's a graduate level, which um, very few folks actually do well, which is keeping your mind quiet, no matter where your body is. And um, most folks really struggle with that. If you can master that, you've almost mastered executive presence entirely already. Um, the other three, the other two P's are sort of positivity on one end and then power on the other. Positivity is just starting and ending every conversation live and virtual with personal rapport building, with warmth. Um, you don't want to be brief, uh, but you want to be warm and you want to build a bank of goodwill with people through that personal rapport building. Uh, so it's starting and ending, you know, interactions with positivity. Um, and then the, sort of that third P really is all about power, right? And so that's sort of a combination of competence and confidence. Generally, if we're talking to people about executive presence, they probably already are perfectly or competent enough, um, but it's about how not to give your power away. So in other words, how can you still maintain your confidence and your authority, um, but not in a way that is a trade-off or that sacrifices or compromises your positivity? So what most people do, particularly smart people, is they feel like they've got to really lean into the power sort of first and foremost. And when you do that well, and when you're really smart and you're really competent, people will say, oh my goodness, that Chris, that Rob, they're just so smart. I don't trust them at all. You know, I don't trust that person at all because they don't feel any real personal connection with you. It feels transactional. It feels like, you know, you might manipulate them or bite them, uh, so to speak, bite the hand that feeds them. So, so um, you want to be careful about that. So the idea is to dial all of these three Ps up, presence, power, and positivity. If we were talking about it in terms of the three Cs, which is an equivalent way of talking about it, we'd say it's really just uh, maintaining your calm and your coolness. That's the first C. Um, it's confidence on one end and the connection on the other. Now, I'm curious because, see, as you grow up in higher level stuff, um, there's natural an occurrence of, okay, hey, I'm very confident, and you come and you have this presence, and it is our power. However, though, also in that, sometimes pride and arrogance can kind of show its face. So how do you make sure in these kind of attributes that you make sure you keep that in check? There's still a, hum a humbleness, but there is this power presence, as well as, um, like you said, there's calmness and connection with those people. 
Yeah, so um, on one level, it's self-awareness, I'd say that's probably the master key to it there. Um, the way I uh, sort of discern or differentiate arrogance from confidence is that, first of all, arrogance is um, insecurity and lack of confidence masquerading as confidence. So there's that. Um, and that's true of often pride as well. Um, you know, the other way to talk about it is that um, arrogance is exclusive. Confidence is inclusive. So when you're extraordinarily confident in who you are, you're self-aware and you're self-loving and you're self-compassionate and you're self-confident, um, you can include other people in that confidence without it feeling like it's a hit or a ding or it will compromise your own self-confidence or self-esteem or self-love, right? So in other words, I'm like, yo, Chris is dope. I love Chris, man. He's just like an incredible guy. He's so smart, you know, he's charismatic. He's fun to talk to. And I don't feel at all diminished when I say that, at the same time, I say, I'm also really dope and I love what I do. And I have this sweet spot of this core competency or this competitive advantage in this one unique area. And I know that there's nobody better at doing that than me in the whole world, right? So I'm able to say both in the same breath and I don't have to, you know, only prop myself up by putting other people down. Now I want to loop back and I really appreciate that differentiation. I think that's really, really awesome to see how, uh, you know, it's more um, inclusive versus exclusive and that confidence, that pride and differentiating that. Now I want to loop back and around and what you talk about quieting the mind. What do you mean by that exactly? Yeah, so it's being able to turn off your mind at will on demand whenever you want. Um, so the first step is really, can you think what you want to think? And can you feel what you want to feel when you want to think it and when you want to feel it, right? So most people, I'd say most of us are uh, much too tolerant of mind wandering, uh, where you have a trouble being attentive and being present and being focused. So there's that. Um, the second piece is, um, you know, you don't need to be thinking all the time. If you're swiffering, can you just swiffer and not think? If you're listening, can you just listen and listen to the other person and not listen to your own thoughts about the other person? If you're taking a shower, if you're cooking, if you're going for a walk, can you just do those things and not think, right? So it's in other words, it's unitasking. It's doing one thing at a time, remembering that thinking counts as one thing. So if you can practice as often as you can remember throughout the day, just letting your mind be quiet as you do what you do, you'll find that you not only do it so much more efficiently and effectively, but you also do it so much more enjoyably and you don't make as many mistakes. So the key there is like flow state. You know, athletes are well aware of this you know, um, thinking gets in the way of creativity, Thinks, get, thinking often gets in the way of productivity and efficiency and uh, even enjoyment. So you wanna try and get the mind out of the way and then let all of that practice and time you've spent perfecting your craft come through in a really organic and seamless fashion. Are there things to do that help facilitate that quietness? Yes. Um, so I'd say that uh, first and foremost, it's unitasking. So it's easier if you start to focus your mind on one thing at a time. Um, but then second, I have a practice or a tool that I love. I was introduced to probably 20 years ago and I talked about it a lot, but I never did it in the beginning. You know, I tell everybody else, you should do this thing. It's so great. You know, <laughs> like a typical coach thing. And then I realized uh, that while it sounded so paltry, it was actually really powerful. It's a micro meditation. A micro meditation is just one breath. So for one moment in your life, for one breath, you pretend like it's the last moment or the last breath you have in this body on this planet. And you try to be really sincere about that. I mean, the truth is our lives can end in the next moment, in the next hour, in the next day, in the next week. We don't know. We genuinely don't know. No moment is guaranteed. So if you can really remember that, then all you do is you let all your thoughts go and you try to enjoy this one breath as deeply as humanly possible by breathing in through your nose and out of your mouth and from the stomach. And so you do it only to enjoy it. If you do it to get good at it, you'll never get good at it. 
If you do it to enjoy it, you'll get really good at it really fast. Um, but that can be a real challenge, especially for the most ambitious people. Um, you know, they often struggle with this the most because they want to get good at it. And that's the one thing that gets in the way of getting good at it is trying to get good at it. Now, that is actually really interesting. I've never heard that in my entire life, but I love that perspective and taking that breath. And it's like, hey, this is the last one. This is what it is. And how's that going to feel and experience in that? Um, now, what, what one of the things I, I I started doing is is doing things and activities that I'm not good at so that my focus is getting myself out from what I'm actually having to think about and getting myself like, oh, gosh, I'm writing with my left hand or I'm painting with my left hand or something like that. It's like, man, I suck at it. Now I got all my concentration on that. But I, that's why I was curious in that unit task. doesn't matter what it is, really. Uh, it's just doing it and being focused in that. That's brilliant. I love what you said there because I that's an actual um, major key there, which is being in the body, not in the brain. So one way to talk about um, keeping the mind quiet is to be more curious or interested or invested in the experience in the body rather than the explanations in the brain, right? So to your point, the more you can be in your five physical senses and that tactile um, sort of experience of riding the bike, of doing the laundry, of typing on the keyboard, of drinking the water, the more you can be in your body about it, the less you'll be in your head about it. And then the more you'll enjoy it. And also you'll start to notice when you're satisfied too. It's like, okay, I don't need 14 shots of you know, tequila. I'm good with four or maybe I'm good with zero, right? So you're able to stop before you get yourself in trouble. Um, but yes, and also to your point, novelty is extraordinarily helpful that way. There's a researcher at um, Harvard University, Ellen Langer. She talks a lot about that. She actually describes or defines mindfulness, which is not being full of mind. It's being empty of mind and being full of awareness. She describes it as noticing what's new. So if you can do things that are new or novel, you will find that you're forced to be more in your body and less in your head, especially if it's something that is, um, you know, like a hands-on experience. That is brilliant, man. I love your analogies, by the way. This is brilliant, but I, that is, I like that. I like that. I'm taking notes over here, which is awesome. Now, we're talking a little bit about, you know, um, this charisma, this influence that, you know, most individuals want. Um, do you find that some have an, an inability to ascertain the higher levels that some people already have. Do you think it's like just kind of innate talent that some people may have it and some people don't? And if so, there's always growth to it. I'd love to just kind of walk through with those that need a little bit of growth. How, that, how does that look like? Yeah, I think um, like talent, I think lots of us think of charisma as something that's innate and inborn or, or, not, or you don't have it at all, right? It's like an all or nothing kind of thing. Um, and of course, we know there's um, sort of, it's on a spectrum, um, but we also know it's learnable. Um, you can hack it. You know, I mean, I was voted most shy in my high school class and I'm by no means saying I'm the most charismatic guy in the world, but I'm nowhere near what I used to be. You know, I'm not quite where I'm going to be, but I'm not where I used to be. So um, charisma, executive presence um, are learnable um, skills. It's important to have a growth mindset and believe that you can learn them. Um, but yeah, for sure, there are some folks that are just born charismatic. I remember my brother was like that at six, seven years old, 12 years old, you know, everybody just loved him, you know, because he just um, seemed to uh, sort of evoke or sort of communicate effortlessly this charisma and this confidence. Um, and a lot of that too was that he wasn't an overthinker. You know, one thing that gets in the way of charisma for sure is overthinking or overtrying. Right. So the more you think, the more you try, the more you try, the more you often think. Um, and so sometimes, you know, and that doesn't mean that charismatic people, the innately charismatic people aren't thinkers. I mean, Bill Clinton is well known for being extraordinarily charismatic. Um, and uh, he's obviously extraordinarily you know, smart, too. So, um, yeah, uh, it's interesting that some of us are born with 
more charisma, but you can learn uh, charisma. And in fact, uh, you can get just as charismatic as the most charismatic person out there if you just put some time in. You know, Robert, your, your story is very interesting because you say you were, you were shy. And I want to kind of dive into this a little bit, you know, because now you're able to work with these high caliber. And some individuals, you know, I've, I've met and, and they're very, very high caliber. They're just big personalities and they're bigger than life sometimes. And so sometimes you may feel inadequate when you meet them or and at the end of the day, they're just people, right? They just still run through the same thing, right? And so I'm curious, Robert, what were some limiting beliefs uh, in your life that you had to overcome that were holding you back from the highest level that you are now obtaining? Oh, you got such great questions, man. You've done this before. <laughs> You've done this before. Um, so I would say that, so the first thing I'll say is all beliefs are limiting beliefs, okay? All thoughts are limiting thoughts. They're limited um, by their very nature. I mean, we can't capture um, uh, the ocean with a spoon. That's essentially what we try to do when we capture any experience or um, really anything in the world with our thoughts, with our very small, finite, limited brains and minds. That's the first thing. All beliefs are limited. Um, second, to your point, um, some beliefs are much more limited and limiting than other beliefs. And I would say that, um, I mean, I was nothing but a repository of limiting beliefs from the very early age. I thought that um, IQ was hardwired. I thought that sociability and charisma was hardwired. I thought that happiness was hardwired. Uh, I thought the basketball skill was hardwired to a large extent. Um, that one was for me a little bit more flexible and I knew it was a little bit more malleable, but still I'd say um, I was pretty convinced that who I was at the age of six or seven would probably be who I was at the age of 67, you know? And uh, so I'd say that, gosh, so many. For me, the biggest ones were probably um, definitely around charisma. It was probably also in around just being sociable, like socially intelligent, uh, I didn't really speak till I was like 16, 17 very much. I was most shy in my high school class. Um, I think uh, probably also um, certainly ideas around money for sure, making money. Um, also ideas around like there's a, there's, there's a, we all have sort of what we call success contracts in our head or happiness contracts in our head or love contracts in our head, which basically are a series or story um, of limiting beliefs that limit or tell you what is necessary in order for you to be happy, feel loved, or be successful. And of course, we make all of that out. I mean, we inherit it from our parents and cultural and social programming conditioning, um, but they become limiting beliefs that play out in our lives. And when we don't make those unconscious beliefs conscious, then they dictate our lives and we call it fate. Oh, it's just, I was fated to be a failure. I was fated not to make any money. I was fated for these things to happen. It's like, no, you weren't actually. Um, yes, if you don't investigate and explore those unconscious or limiting beliefs, make them conscious and then reframe them in ways that are much more productive and supportive in terms of you experiencing or achieving what you want to experience or achieve, yes, it will be or seem to be your fate. Uh, but yeah, for me, I had ideas around happiness that had to be earned. I had ideas around success that it could only come with pain and suffering and it could only come, you know, if I had more money that if I inherited more or whatever, it was all kinds of ideas. They're all wrong because you can find, if you can find one exception to any of it, you know that, you know, and often the exception proves the rule. So I know plenty of people in my practice that are rich and successful and work way less than you and I ever worked, <laughs> right? And they're way less talented and they're way less charismatic. And they'll admit all of that, you know, and they'll say, I don't know, it's just interesting. And then there are people on the other spectrum, which have just, they work themselves to the bone, they're really smart, they're charismatic, all the things. And um, they've experienced nothing but failure, at least they feel they have. So uh, yeah, I'd say, um, Booty used to say, your only problem is that you think there are rules. And I would agree with that. That's brilliant. And, and I want to dive into this a little bit because it, I always find it very interesting psychologically because I want to talk a little bit about psychology happenings, what, what, what some of your books are about here. But 
in regards to you know stories that we tell ourselves a little bit, what story during that time, if you can you know get yourself back in the old high school, you know Robert, what story were you telling yourself during that period of time that you were like, and then at what point did you start coming to that realization that oh this is this is the wrong story, I need to reframe that to tell myself the correct story that can help me, you know unleash that. Yeah, so it was a, it was a pretty terrible, terribly harsh story I told about myself, which was, which was that I'm, uh, I'm the stupidest, ugliest, least confident um, person in the world. That's what I thought as a child. And I thought I would never really get better than that. The only little glimpse or hope that I had was I wanted to be a professional basketball player. I was gonna, if I can make that happen, you know, even though I'm the least athletic person in the world, if I can make that happen, and I still had a belief, thankfully, in hard work. I was like, if I can work hard enough, maybe I could become this thing and then I could be celebrated and I'll finally have a girlfriend. I'll finally have some friends and I'll finally, you know, maybe break out of my shell or something like that. Like the popularity and the fame and the success would somehow cure me of all these other problems, which was just, you know, they were, it was an endless list of things. Um, but the basic idea was there that was that I was just born a failure. I was just born a failure. You know, the rest of my family successful and they, I can tell they're gonna all be successful and they are all successful, but I'm just meant to be a failure. Um, so I had about, I had countless stories that were just riffs off that one same theme. You know, so when it came to athletics, that was the case or academics, that was the case. When it came to, you know, dating, that was the case. With friends, it was the case. With making money, it was the case. With marketing and advertising, it was the case. The same story, which is that, no, you're just meant to fail. Where do you think that came from then in your life? Uh, I think a couple of things. I think there's both sort of, um, we'll call it nature. So the brain is built with, you know, dozens of cognitive distortions and cognitive biases. One of them is negativity bias. We've all got that built into the brain. So that essentially means that um, your brain is built and wired for survival, not necessarily happiness. That being said, if you survive in these bodies, your chance of being happy in these bodies goes up dramatically, right? So the brain really is like a hammer. And when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So the mind, the brain is meant to solve problems. And so it all actively and consistently is always looking for problems to solve to keep you alive. Um, now, we're all born with that. The challenge that I had is that I didn't know much other than that. So I was always doubling down on that. I was so full of fear and so full of, and I was such a risk avoider that I was just continuing to sort of like drill down on that. I was so afraid of embarrassing myself. And so I lived most of my life from a place of fear. Um, and then I would just, and because of that, something called confirmation bias kicks in. So I would start to look for and see and only listen to and believe messages from movies and TV shows and from well-intentioned parents and teachers that said anything remotely similar to life is scary, you should be afraid, things are going to go wrong. Wow. Wow. Isn't that just, it's, it's scary to see how how accurate that is. And I appreciate you kind of unpacking your story a little bit. And I'm curious because you, you've been able to help and you've written numerous books about this and uh, you really just went all in with the happiness psychology a little bit. And I like to unpack a little bit, you know, did you, you personally struggle with that yourself? And then now being able to go through that, how have you been able to impact? Because I mean, you, you've been able to help some amazing people unpack their own story as well and find that true happiness. But I'd love to unpack, you know, what that meant to you in your life. I appreciate that so much, brother. Yeah, I, you know, I only do this work, interestingly enough, you know, as a happiness coach is because 
I was so unhappy for so long. You know, I mean, my first memories of being alive were ones of being um, or feeling stress and anxiety. I was self-loathing and self-hating and self-judgmental um, and just deeply, deeply dysphoric and, uh, you know, unhappy, unhappy. And I always thought I'd grow out of it. I was like, well, maybe I'll grow out of it. You know, if I can become a professional basketball player, if I can experience some success, then maybe it'll solve itself. But that didn't happen. It just got worse over the years. I became so depressed. I started experiencing suicidal ideation dozens of times a day. I thought about that more than anything else in the whole world. I eventually got to a place where I decided to do some research. I looked at ways to kill myself. Um, and I decided I was gonna slash my wrist. Um, don't know exactly why I chose that one, except that I had access um, to the means. Uh, so I remember getting a kitchen knife or a steak knife and I dug it into my wrist and uh, had the most unexpected experience at that time. Like it was, I was contemplating killing myself in that moment uh, without anything externally changing. I mean, at that point I had a pretty good life. You know, I didn't really have a reason to complain. I had a consulting job, I hated it, but I liked the people. You know, I was healthy. I got along with my family, I had a beautiful girlfriend, I had two beautiful German cars. I mean, I had a good life, but I was just miserable for it. So when I dug the knife in, without anything changing on the outside, I just felt this inexplicable peace and uh, love and this sense of well-being and joy kind of wash over me. Uh, and so at the time, I was like, this is strange. It's not kind of what you expect, <laughs> you know? And so I decided, I was, you know, I'm like, gonna postpone the suicide thing for like a couple minutes, you know? And at the time that felt like a really tall order. I was like, life is so miserable though. I'm not gonna make it a few minutes, but I just kept telling myself, well, I always have this suicide thing in my back pocket if I need it, but let me just do a little bit of different research, different kind of research. And so I started looking up what is depression? What's happiness? What's unhappiness? And I began to find an entire body of research um, around this. And at the time, it wasn't called positive psychology, but it was the beginning of positive psychology. And so it was sort of like uh, time-tested, face-valid uh, research and data that explained both the causes and effects of happiness. You know, we often talk about what causes happiness, but happiness also has effects. Happiness causes things like success, like health, like longevity, like happier relationships. So I was fascinated by this like lazy, intelligent approach to like mastering life. Um, and so I began just putting myself, um, you know, pouring myself into books and you know, everything I get my hands on that would teach me more and more about happiness. And so Robert, what you're saying and what you're just talking about here is because our brain is wired in a more survival aspect, then this happiness, this, this stuff does not come naturally. It has to be learned. And so I'd love to kind of dive into that a little bit. If that's when that's true, which we know that you just mentioned that it's survival, then what kind of intentionality can we do and implement on a single everyday basis that helps us facilitate that? Yeah. So, and I just love the way you expressed that and you allowed me to um, clarify something that I might not have fleshed out earlier, which is like, um, if you look at um, small uh, children, not always, they have their temper tantrums, but small children often are happier than your average adult um, in lots of respects, right? And also if you look into nature, I mean, all of nature is perfectly blissful except for human beings, right? And all of nature experiences the same death, loss, misadventure, accidents, illness, all of it nature experiences, but nature doesn't make a problem out of their own existence the same way that human beings do. And so what happens is that at some point in time, as we begin to develop abstract thought, prefrontal cortex, you know, begins to just grow and grow. And uh, before you know it, you find yourself overanalyzing, lost in discursive thought. And that's where the unhappiness really starts 
um, to sort of get worse and worse and deepen for most of us. Uh, we go from living in the moment, the present moment, not living for the present moment, but living in the present moment to a place where now we're living in the future or living in the past mostly. Um, so what unhappiness uh, essentially uh, is, is uh, too much thinking and not enough living. It's too much thinking, not enough feeling, uh, too much thinking, not enough experiencing. And um, so the challenge and opportunity with happiness is really unlearning unhappiness. And you don't have to unlearn everything that you've ever been taught because most of what you've been taught has been garbage. So you can pretty much throw <laughs> most of it out, especially if it comes to happiness. Uh, you can throw most of it out and you'll find that you're just happier and um, not only happier, but often more successful in an authentic way, in an effortlessly authentic way, if you can just unlearn all the nonsense we've been taught. So there's a great Mark Twain quote. Uh, this is something like, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you do know that just ain't so. That's the case with happiness. Oh, this is awesome, man. I love this. And, and I think it's so interesting what you're talking about because, you know, like, and I, that's one of the reasons why I asked you about the story that we tell ourselves a little bit. And I appreciate you just sharing your story and, you know, that, that vulnerable moment, but that's where it kind of led you to this evolution, this transformation. And I know that must have been a very, very long journey through that, but that was a beginning point. And now you've been able to impact so many. So what I'd like to talk a little bit about is, you know, because we have seen, right, and, and money is, is, is not, and successes and accolades, all that really, it's, it's, it's really what the meaning that we put toward it, right, and how we interpret that experience. And, and what I found so interesting, and I'd love to get your perspective on this, sometimes we, we say, oh, I have to do X, Y, Z to be successful. And that's either a conscious or subconscious belief, but sometimes we never have clarity. What actually needs to happen? And you mentioned this a little bit. We live too much in the past or too much in the future. And it's, it's interesting because it's like there's this expectation. But sometimes if we don't know what that expectation is in our life, whether it's conscious or subconscious, we're getting clarity on that. Then we call this anxiety, this stress, this depression, this frustration, this annoyance. And like you said, all these, these patterns. And, you know, let's be honest, life gets crazy. Life gets busy. You got kids, you got corporate, you got women, you got this, you got all that stuff, right? And you got parties to attend to and you got all this and, and we drive ourselves, we got to always be thinking about this stuff. And so, you know, I guess my, my thing is one of the things that I found very interesting about COVID was it actually almost mandated everybody to stop. And it was actually very interesting. Yes, we got a whole bunch of stats and a lot of things were happening, a lot of, but also what was interesting is just to see how people adapt a little bit. And then people just slow down. And I found very interesting those conversations, those dialogues that they were just putting under the rug they had to have in you know, families or whatever. And, and I just found it very interesting uh, psychologically. And I just want to get your response in regards to when you're working with high caliber clients, you know, like you mentioned, where do you start to kind of unpack that seed by seed, you know, bit by bit? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, and you, you just nailed it with COVID. Uh, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we've known for a long time, especially in the States, but all of the world, you've got a, you've got a growing income, uh, sort of inequality gap, right, income gap there. But we also have a growing sort of happiness gap as well. The people that are at the happiest end of the spectrum got happier. The people at the lowest end of the happiness spectrum got, became less happy. They became unhappier, right? And so it's interesting. It was um, sort of a litmus test in a way of where you are, you know, um, a happy person is one who is happy even when they're in a room by themselves and they're left with nothing but their own thoughts to keep them company kind of thing, right? So um, there's that. With my clients, you know, I sort of start in the same place, which is just listening. You know, um, I want to do everything I, I possibly can to let go of all the thoughts and ideas I have about what this person should or should not be doing, how they should or should not be showing up. And I want to just experience the person for who they are. You know, the one thing that we know about 
all kinds of therapy and coaching is that the most effective therapy and coaching really boils down to one thing, which is unconditional regard. Like, can I hold space for this person in a way where I'm fully, deeply, truly present and I'm listening to them and not to my ideas of them. I'm not imposing any judgments on them. I'm not um, getting in the way of what they're sharing with me. And then I'm able to reflect back to them their own wisdom, or in some cases, their own ignorance, but without judgment, right? So that's the first place to start. So everybody's a little bit different. Um, you know, in the end, the problems and the solutions always end up being pretty much the same. I might deliver it differently. So for the executive, we talk about executive presence. For the entertainer, we talk about charisma. For someone who's maybe um, clearer that they just want to be happy, we'll just talk about happiness. But they're just words that all mean the same thing at the end of the day. Uh, so it sort of depends. The language differs. Um, but the approach is the same. It always starts with unconditional regard and unconditional love and reflecting back the wisdom um, of the other person. And then it's mostly about validating and normalizing and empathizing. Most people um, don't come looking for advice, at least not to me, even though they'll say that, even though they pay me for that, they come looking for a friend. Sometimes they just come looking for an accomplice. That's okay. Um, so I, don't, I try not to get in the way of people discovering their own solutions. Um, and I do that best when I keep my own mind uh, quiet and when I stay sort of rooted and centered uh, in my own happiness and my own peace. Because uh, if there's one thing that I'm clear about, we can show people, I know I can show people, but then I can tell them. So if I can continue to access the peace and the happiness and that feeling of prosperity and abundance within myself while they're having a conversation about conflict or chaos or lack or illness, I know that I can encourage them to better solutions and to a happier, healthier, wealthier experience without so much time, energy, and effort, and without so many words. Mm, I like that. I love that. Now, you, you mentioned here, and I want to talk a little bit about this, how, how do relationships and gratitude play a role in the happiness journey? Yeah. So, you know, we can actually think about gratitude, probably, it's a synonym for love, and love is a synonym for happiness. And so the way I put it is this. We often think of like love and happiness um, or gratitude as happiness and happiness almost as two sides of the same coin, or two, two sides of, or two different coins, but they're really two sides of the same coin. So in other words, um, when you're loving something or someone, you're feeling happiness for or with that somebody or something. Another word for that is just gratitude, right? So gratitude and love and happiness are really synonyms in a way. Um, we don't always see it that way. We don't always experience it that way. And often, especially when it comes to love, you know, you kind of get a, bad rap, it kind of gets a bad name. Um, and so there's some confusing ideas that we have around love that are counterproductive. Um, but at the end of the day, love is just your happiness shared. And uh, you know, uh, so when you're alone and you're happy, we call it happiness. When you're with somebody else and you're happy, we call it love, right? And gratitude is just the experience of either one of those things. Um, so that's one piece, you know, so relationships at the end of the day, from a positive psychology perspective, you know, we know that relationships. And by relationships, we don't just mean romantic relationships. We mean platonic and we just mean friendships. We mean all kinds of relationships. Uh, social support or relationships are one of, if not the most important factor or variable in living a happy life. So if you want to be happy, you want to care about and take care of your social and uh, relationships, um, and your romantic relationships, all relationships, you know, do, do the best you can. Um, the other thing we know for sure as well is that, uh, they, when you're in a relationship, whether it's with a friend or a particular romantic partner, sometimes we think, well, I'm happy enough. I can pull this unhappy person up to my level. But that rarely, if ever, happens. It usually works the other way. So the least happy person in a relationship pulls down the happier person. 
and not the other way around. And so one of the best tips, tricks, or pieces of advice I can give anyone is when it comes to choosing a partner, try to choose a partner who's as happy or happier than you. <laughs> because if you don't, you will experience the result of emotional contagion or social contagion, which is basically you become infected or um, just sick with the other person's misery and unhappiness. Um, the final thing I'll say, there's one more thing I'll say too. So um, we should all at this point, hopefully in our lives, be disabused of this idea that relationships and particularly marriage will make us happy. I mean, you know, yes, you get a small bump in your happiness level um, during that honeymoon phase, okay? But then after that, you quickly return to your baseline level of happiness. And then often you dip way below that, you know, as the marriage relationship goes on. Um, now, on the other end, while relationships or relationship success um, doesn't predict happiness, happiness does actually predict or facilitate uh, relationship success and happy relationships. So in other words, happy people get married earlier, happier, longer, and happier in all the relationships, whether they're married or not, right? Second of all, they get along more easily with other people. Third, other people get along more easily with them. Fourth, they're rated as more attractive than their unhappy counterparts. So people will literally look at pictures of you smiling in one picture and not smiling in the other. The one is an authentic smile. And in the authentically smiling picture, they'll say, oh God, this guy's a 10 out of 10. You know, Chris, he's so good looking. And the other is like, oh, I don't know, maybe he's an eight you know, just because you weren't smiling. So if you care about love and you care about relationships and you care about some other things we'll talk about here, like success, you want to care about happiness. It's one of the fastest, most efficient, effective, and enjoyable ways to experience more of what you want in life, no matter what you want in life. Now, I love what you said there in regards to it. It's relationships and being aware of this because you know we see this but also in in coordination to like success a lot of times or financial success but we never think about it in in root of happiness as well because it's like we get the whole concept of the five people that are closest where they may be very successful financially but you ought to be aware hey are they successful in the happiness category as well so that should be a, something that our audience should be listening to i appreciate just kind of having that perspective because even though we've heard that we've never actually have thought of that in that in that um arena which is i think really really important to hear uh, and then also one of the things that I've done in, you know, I, I always struggle with a lot of just pride and arrogance in my life. And one of the things that I, I do is like just to hold myself in a perspective is, you know, being grateful for what I have, what I do have. And, uh, you know, not looking at, like you mentioned, and judging when, when, I, when I see something, it's more of, hey, I'm grateful for that. I have X, Y, Z and, you know, and whatever. And just being grateful and gratitude and showing these skills or attributes or whatever that um, and, and the same thing with that individual. Hey, I'm grateful for that person being able to do that, accomplish that X, Y, Z. Um, and, and that helped me get a nice perspective in that regard. Uh, I am, I'm intrigued because, see, when I and I had a friend of mine that was struggling with just this frustration, a lot of things were happening. And right away, I said, hey, let's let's get up and let's do something. And right away, we went and I found someone that was worse off than he was on the street. And I said, hey, let's go and get him a meal or something. And it wasn't like I'm not just tooting his horn, but I'm doing that because I wanted to unpack his thing and his stuff. And I realized the best way to do it is through action. Action sometimes are, are, are the, and, and getting people out of that situation and doing something that helps them generate joy and that gratitude and happiness and so forth. And I just want to get your perspective because, you know, you have seen people you know, they have the weight of the world, you know, definitely with the people that you work with. I mean, there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of anxiety. And let's be honest, there's some mean things that, uh, that are said to those people, um, you know, online, on the news, man, they look kind of fat in that dress, whatever it is, like, there's just some derogatory stuff. And so, you know, naturally, they'll probably come to you, open up that, have that conversation, you do an excellent work and not judging them, just hearing them, listening to them, 
And I'm just curious, Robert, during that time, is it more of just listening to them and let them you know, kind of work through it? Or is it more of, hey, what can I say to help them get over this or give a different perspective? Because I, I'm just, I think everybody runs through that. And I'd love to just kind of hear your response working with some high class yeah. you have. Such a, gosh, there's so much there to unpack. I mean, it's so good. It's all the things you shared. There's so many insights in that powerful question. Um, first, I'll say to your gratitude point, yes, uh, I was unhappy when I, uh, because I had no shoes until I met the man or woman who had uh, no feet, right? So gratitude, really powerful. You can't be happy with things you don't have. You have to be happy with the things that you do have. And it's interesting because if you can see the ways in which you're steeped in abundance and prosperity right now, right here and now, no matter how little you have, you find that it grows, right? What you appreciate, appreciates. It grows in value. That's literally true. We have lots of empirical da data to support that. Um, that if you can feel abundant and prosperous now, no matter how little you have, it will your abundance and prosperity will grow in material ways over time. I mean, it's kind of wild. You save more money, you make more money. Um, happier people make about six hundred to seven hundred thousand dollars on average, more than their unhappy peers uh, over the course of their lifetime, right? So that it matters. Uh, so that's the, that piece. You know, when it comes to clients, and you're right too. Um, the challenge with gratitude, I remember I really struggled with gratitude uh, when I had a really good life. I was still struggling with it. In fact, I felt guilty, in fact, guiltier that I couldn't feel gra gratitude for all that I had. And so one of the discoveries I made was that you don't really want to fake the gratitude. You want to start where it's easy. You want to reach for the low-hanging fruit. For, so for me, even though I should be grateful for running water and a roof over my head, I was like, had, I was like well, I love talking to and connecting with beautiful women. That's where I started. I was like, oh, you know, this is great. This is great, I can start right there. And I can sit in that place and actually be genuinely grateful and happy and not judge myself about that, right? And then over time, it grows, okay? Um, back to your other point, you know, when it comes to my clients, and it's a great question there. I mean, some of my unhappiest clients have, by, without question, been the richest and most successful and the most famous. You know, I've had a client, one client, uh, $400 million a year, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and just, really, really unhappy and really miserable. And it made it very difficult uh, for this client to um, enjoy anything, uh, let alone the simple, small things. Um, in the beginning, with most of my uh, clients, it's all about listening and seeking to understand before seeking to be understood. It's critical, okay? Um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one, it's just too easy for me to just mind dump things on people and assume they're just like everybody else. And uh, while that's true almost always, I still want to let, get that out of the way. That being said, there's a period of time that happens um, between then and when I begin to make a hard pivot. And it sort of depends on the readiness of the client. So, um, you know, one of the things I try to vet for in the beginning is just uh, change readiness. How ready and receptive and open is this person to learning and to changing? Um, when I got into this business 20 years ago, I thought I was entering into the behavior change business. <laughs> I've been disabused of that notion as well um, because not everyone is ready to make a change. They may be in a pre-contemplative stage or if they're entering coaching, coaching, they're usually in a contemplative stage, but not an action stage. You know, we wanna eventually get them beyond that more than just a maintenance stage. Um, so assessing or vetting for readiness of change is critical. Um, and I, as much as I love to make money, I'm open to receiving money, all forms of abundance. I didn't get in this business to make money. I could make a lot more money and be a lot more famous and popular and probably a lot more successful in traditional ways doing a whole lot of other things. Um, but I genuinely care about people and I genuinely care about living and creating a happier world. And I like being happy myself. So at some point in time, after a few sessions, when I realized that this person probably is better off for therapy or they're better off um, you know, just having conversations where they're not getting um, the kind of um, reflection 
or being invited into a deep dive or being asked to make a change or encouraged or empowered to make a change, um, I'll find ways to maybe refer them out. Um, but ideally what happens in almost all cases is that we do a hard pivot at some point where we now let go of whatever the problem is and we focus on solutions. So we let go of the past and we focus on the present and the future. And um, you know that can be hard for people. It's hard to remember that focusing on problems, no matter how justified you are in feeling upset about those problems really only makes you an expert in problems. It never makes you an ex expert in solutions. So the problem and solution are always on two different pages. They're on two different wavelengths. They're on two different frequencies. So that's the hard pivot for most people is uh, moving from the problem to a solution orientation. Uh, but once we've done that, then it's just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other. I love what you said here. Oh my gosh, so valuable. And I, I don't want to, I want to make sure we foot stomp on this because you know, I want to pull back a little bit, Robert, in regards to what you said here. When people are down and they got beaten up and I, and I, I want to, I want to, and you, you talk to a lot of high caliber people and, you know, they, they may have been in a situation where there's a lot of negative news about them, or maybe someone that's listening to now and they have a really bad employee or something like that. And you need to have that tough conversation. And what I, I'm curious though, and, and I'd love to get your response on this because you, you mentioned, are they in a teachable spirit? Because sometimes when you, when they just got hit and they're on the ground and they're kind of flailing, sometimes they're not in a teachable spirit. Maybe like you mentioned, they're just more listening and maybe you just need to you know, com you know, comfort them. And I wanna ask you when you're working with someone, is it just intuition or are there certain things that you can identify and say, okay, hey, they were now ready for an approach? Or do you ask for permission and say, hey, can I suggest something? Because then that opens them because what I've, and I just wanna share this because I've been in a situation where I go directly for the kill, hey, they're ready for it. And I realized that I messed up that relationship because I was not aware contextually of the environment. I was like, oh, you know what? I read that wrong and I should have asked approval or I should have been listening. And that was not my position because they weren't ready. They weren't teachable. They didn't want to change. Not at that moment. Now, maybe, maybe a few hours, maybe a few days later, they were okay with that and having that conversation and dialogue, but at that point. So I guess my point is, is the approach. And in that time, what are certain green flags or red flags that identify, Hey, are they teachable? Are they in this change mindset? And how do you discern that? So that as a leader, as someone that's obviously helping and a coach like yourself, being able to say, hey, I want to make it the highest impact. And you can do either positively or negatively, but I want to make sure I do it appropriately. Oh, such a great question. Gosh, so much in there. <laughs> such, I mean, we could have throw workshops on all of this. Like you're so great at just really clarifying these incredible um, points and questions with insight. Um, so I, a couple of things. So for, when I pick up the phone, I, and I used to be so much worse at this, I think being, when I was so young and didn't talk a whole lot, and when you just observe people all the time, I didn't realize it. But at the time, I, I think I was growing my emotional intelligence, my social intelligence a little, um, and I was an empath, right? So I feel everything. Um, so I'd walk into a room and I'd suddenly I'd be overwhelmed with stress or anxiety. And it was like, so weird, what's going on with me? And I didn't realize until later that I was really taking on other people's emotions and thoughts. So as I began to realize that, what I didn't realize was that when I started a coaching practice, the second I would pick up the phone or get on a Zoom call, is before I could even say, how are you? I would still follow through and say, how are you? I would know, I think right away, I'm like, oh, they're not doing well. Or they just had a really tough week. I couldn't explain it, which is an intuitive hit. Like I could feel it. And in the beginning, I would call out and say, oh, you say you're okay, but everything's telling me you're not okay, you know? I realized not to do that. People aren't always ready for that. So I, the first thing for me is I'll get an intuitive hit. Like, oh, this person is not doing well. And to your point, when most of us are in a really low mood, that for sure is the worst time to problem solve anyway, 
okay? Um, and it's the worst time to have an important conversation, believe it or not, especially with a significant other. Um, and it's the worst time to make important decisions. So when you're in a low mood, wait out your low mood before you make important decisions or have um, important conversations, which is critical. So you wanna at least either distract the person or talk to the person long enough where the low mood begins to dissipate a little bit. And then you can begin from that place to explore whether or not they're ready for change. Generally speaking, when people are extraordinarily depressed, they're feeling relatively helpless and you going through some kind of problem solving exercise with them will probably backfire um, at worst. And at best, it'll just have you spinning your wheels. Okay. So once they're in a little bit of better mood, that's a better time to try and bet for problem solving. Now, even if they're in a better mood, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're ready to make changes yet. And so often what I'll do, and I, sometimes I do this with clients that I've known for a little while or friends I've known for a little while, when they reach out and say, hey, Rob, do you have time to talk? I'll say, yeah. And before the conversation starts, maybe even over text or email, I'll say, you know, how, 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 do, how can I be most helpful? Are you looking to, are you looking to vent? Are you, are you looking to share? Are you looking to... Um, uh, brainstorm, or you're looking to problem solve, you know, or, or there's another option, which is, are you looking for resources? So then I know right away, without having to do this whole rigmarole thing, I know where they're at and what they're looking for. They're clear about it too, so we don't have to have any uh, disappointment in that experience. Uh, but yeah, I'd say that's the best way. Um, and the other way is just throughout the conversation, just ask them. When you get to the end, I generally always default into listening, mirroring back what I heard them say in my own words without judgment, validate, normalize, empathize. That's the structure. And then once you've done a little bit of positive reframing here and there, like you can see if they take the bait, right? So, so they'll, they'll share a problem. They'll say, oh, I've never been unhappier than I am today. And I'll say that, me, I, I hear you there. I hear what you're saying. What you're saying is there's never been a greater opportunity for you to be happier than there is today. And I'll see if they take the bite and say, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. I know we're good. We can move from there. But if they say, ah, oh, that's not really the way I feel, Rob. This is a really bad day. I just stop there. But then finally, in the very end, uh, we get to the end of the conversation or partway through, I'll say, well, what can I do to be most helpful? Talk to me. And often people would just say, just listening. I'm saying, okay, fair enough. Do you have any resources, Rob? You know, do you know anybody else? Can you get me on Chris's podcast? <laughs> Whatever it is, right? So um, that's your, generally my like final resort or last resort is just to simply ask them again. Oh, I love that. Such, such beautiful clarity behind that. And I think it's so interesting how you just laid that out for a lot of our audience, because this is so applicable to leadership, to your business, the way you're having these difficult conversations sometimes, uh, and making sure that you get clear on that and asking what, what are they looking for? And then just having that dialogue. Uh, I really appreciate you kind of unpacking that for us, Robert. I do want to talk about, of course, uh, the biggest thing is naturally the, the power of, of the happiness, integrating this, implementing this, and obviously some of the case studies that you've seen, not just financially, but just blessings in their life, the serendipity sometimes in life where, hey, you know what, I uh, now I've got, a, you know, I never had, I was very lonely, and now I've got a lot of wealth and stuff like that, but also I've got amazing, beautiful relationships that actually care for me and love me, et cetera. You know, I just love to hear some of your case studies that you've seen by people transacting this and integrating this in their life and the serendipities. Yeah. So, you know, I think um, I am very blessed and fortunate. So many of the people that I speak to on a regular basis, um, quite frankly, are already extraordinarily successful and, uh, you know, affluent, um, you know, in lots of ways, uh, sometimes and seemingly always except for one. And so my greatest um, and happiest um, case studies are the cases of where people thought they could never be happy again or could never be happy unless they were on antidepressants forever or unless they were doing X, Y, and Z forever. And um, so I would say those people for me are um, the greatest success stories because um, they had enough money and success and popularity 
to buy everything except for the one thing they most wanted, which was an experience or feeling of self-love or of peace or of happiness or just true success, right? So that for me is, is mind-blowing. And then you can see it show up in their music, right? So I've got a few musicians, you can show up, it just changes. I mean, and, and people think that they'll be less creative when they're happier, but it's not true. You are way more creative when you're in a good mood than you were in a bad mood. You know, lots of bad, you know, sort of bad feeling songs written when you're in a bad mood, sure. But usually where the, you know, um, sort of magic happens is when you're uh, sort of on that up, Word spiral towards more and more happiness. Uh, same thing with, so that's true with music, same thing with athletes. You know, I think some of my most success, um, my greatest success stories there are just, um, you know, athletes that are going through a slump. It might be a baseball slump, might be a golf slump, might be a basketball slump. They don't seem to be hitting anything. They seem to be getting injured a lot. And, you know, if we can get them back to a place where they're truly loving the game for its own sake and not so focused on the scoreboard and focus on the joy of scoring or playing alone, then they find that they're experiencing flow state more consistently. And as they experience flow state more consistently, you know, they become 500 to 1000% more productive and efficient and creative. And they're enjoying their life and their work so much more, right? And so we talk about find ways for them to experience more flow state, both on and off the court or field. Uh, so that's super exciting for me too. And then there are the other cases of folks like you know, just like me that, you know, are um, continuing, uh, you know, to build a successful life and career. And um, those folks, I think what's fascinating to me is that so many of us work so hard and so long at things. And so I've got a fashion designer um, too. And, uh, and there was a Victoria's Secret model like this too, where it was like, you know, they had this dream and this big vision, uh, but they were so focused on the outcome and the result that they couldn't dial back into the process and the joy of the adventure. And uh, that was compromising their happiness and was compromising their confidence and their charisma. And they were working so hard, they were working tirelessly, you know, uh, either in the gym all day or, you know, uh, in the, whatever it was, just working at their craft and not feeling like they're getting very far. But once they let go and they relax a little bit, they find that all this natural charisma and confidence comes through. All of a sudden, it seems like opportunities appear out of nowhere and magic happens. And that part I can't particularly explain. I mean, we have research that supports the fact that when you relax, things happen. Beautiful, magical, miraculous things happen in your body, in your relationships, in your world, in your life, in your money. But when it actually shows up, I'm just as surprised as everybody else. And I'm always like, oh, thank God. <laughs> thank God. So the came, good came out of that. Because who knows, it could have been 10 years or it could have been 10 days, but it turned out to be, you know, just a few weeks. So uh, yeah, I'd say that those for me are the happiest, um, most sort of greatest success stories. And uh, it happens along a spectrum. But at the end of the day, I think it's helping people get in touch with their innate peace, love, happiness, and true abundance, the kind they can experience whether or not they're successful on any particular day. I think it's so interesting. There's just so much data to show how, hey, you know what? When you emphasize happiness in your life, it almost begots happiness, which begots happiness and a success and et cetera. Like you mentioned, it just it is this overflowing of joy and, and abundance. I want to talk a little bit about, Robert, before I let you go fully, because there's so much here, but identity. Because do you feel like some people, and maybe this might resonate with some audience, I've never struggled this personally, but I feel like there's some that may, may have, that do not feel like they deserve happiness and how they can overcome that. Yeah, um, so everyone deserves happiness, agreed. Everyone deserves it. Um, it is a your birthright, and uh, it is easier than you think, literally. <laughs> we think ourselves out of happiness, we think ourselves out of love, and we think ourselves out of success and peace. Um, we just outthink ourselves, we overthink um, our way 
out of these things. So um, the first thing is to know that you do deserve it. You do deserve it. And you don't have to earn it. You don't have to earn it. Um, it's not something you earn. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't want to or need to or shouldn't invest time, energy, and effort learning what happiness or true happiness truly is or relearning or remembering what true happiness truly is. Um, you do have to spend time in it. I mean, that's the reason I made a career out of it. I mean, literally, I was like, I'm going to need to make a career out of this because I suck at it. Everyone else is better than me at this. So when I made a career out of it, I was like, oh, it's true. We do best learn or um, what we, 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 we best learn what we teach often, right? So as soon as I started teaching, I was like, I better live up to this. You know, then you write a book on it. You're like, I really better live up to this. People are going to ask me, going to check me. If I'm in the bathroom, I'm not smiling. They're going to be a problem, you know? So um, I would say that you do deserve it. Um, you don't have to earn it. Um, it is good to invest time, energy, and effort into it. And you have to have trust and faith that if you can find happiness, everything else will be added or everything else will be included. That's a tough pill to swallow, um, you know, to tell people, hey, um, you know, in order to experience more success, you've got to find a way to be happy without that success. It's hard for people to swallow. Um, but, you know, happiness is not a high price to pay for success. It really isn't. It's like you might die tomorrow. You might die in a year from now or 10 years from now. But at the end of the day, the only reason you want to achieve, accomplish, or acquire anything is because you think you'll feel better for having it. And if you don't feel better for having it, what's the point of having it? Right. So if you can feel better now without having it, I promise you'll get it. You know, you'll get it more easily and more enjoyably and uh, and, more, and more quickly. Uh, so, yeah, you deserve it um, and you don't have to earn it. Man, I love that. I love that. I think you should put that on like some sort of T-shirt. Yeah. Happiness, but you don't have to earn it, guys. And I think that's really awesome because I think there are some that may be listening that they don't feel like they deserve it, right? And there is that just that it's total, totally inaccurate. I don't know exactly what happened in their life, but, you know, unpacking that and say, you know what, there, there is happiness out there for you. Um, and, and, you know, like you mentioned, it's not, it's not earned you it's given to you um robert i just appreciate your immense value today uh just unpacking so much and and what you're doing in the world i mean unpacking your own story so that now you can take that even though this was a sucky journey but you now leveraging that to help so many other individuals that are struggling at different levels different tiers high high celebrities to mid-tier individuals to just you know average folk that just you know need to, to hear this message so uh it's just really cool to see people like yourself that are able to do that and now be, being able to influence so many uh so many so i really appreciate the time today. Uh, Robert, uh, I do know you have some really cool resources as well as amazing books. Um, how can they reach out to you, my audience, and be part of what you got going on, my man? Yeah, for sure. So I want to, first of all, Christian, thank you for being such a light and full of so much love and so much wisdom, brother. And I mean that, like you could be loving a lot of things today that you could have spent your time with a lot of other people, you know, anybody you wanted, you spend it with me. That for me is, um, I just feel deeply grateful about that. Also, not just that, but also the work you do. And I mean that it's podcasts like this one that ultimately saved my life, quite literally. Um, so thank you for that, truly. And uh, please keep up the great work, keep shining. Um, yeah, and folks out there, you, uh, they can find me at my website at coachrobmack.com. You can find me on most social media platforms, probably most consistently, uh, Instagram at official. And you can find both my books, Happiness from the Inside Out and Love from the Inside Out, everywhere great books are sold, including Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target, Walmart, all the places. Awesome, guys. And those links will be in the description below. So make sure you stop what you're doing. And, you know, one of the things I always tell people is this may this may really resonate with you. And if it does, obviously reach out, consume his content, be part of it and follow him on Instagram and just be part of his ecosystem. Or for someone that you know that this could resonate, please definitely share this with your friend, your family. And obviously, you know, make sure you send him, uh, send them this content and, and what, what, uh, what, what, 
Robert is doing in this uh, in this ecosystem and being able to just you know give them more resources in in their journey, whoever that may be. Uh, and again, Robert, I appreciate what you got going on, guys. Those links will be in the description. So this is amazing. Now, I always love to ask my guests before I let you go fully. Is there any last words of wisdom they'd like to share with our audience? Yeah. Um, no thoughts, no problems, man. No thoughts, no problems. So I know they're going to seem like for I think most of us, life can feel like one damn problem after the next, so to speak, you know, as the quote goes. Um, and those problems are endless. So you solve one and something new pops up. So please don't wait to be happy until all your problems are solved. They never will be. You can still be happy and you can solve problems a lot more quickly, easily, efficiently, effectively, and enjoyably if you just find a way to get happy today. So no thoughts, no problems. That is my man, positive psychologist, expert, executive coach, inspirational speaker, and published author, my friend, Robert Mack. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davids podcast. Until next time, be in common if you can. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans, Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. We thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode. If you feel and you know that this was valuable to you, please show some love to our amazing guest by liking this, by commenting on this, by making sure that you do a nice five-star review and just show some love to our guest. That'd be really awesome. Also, make sure you share this with a friend, a family, a colleague, someone that you believe would bring value to their life right now. Uh, and guys, we just want to say thank you again for just being part of our community. If you want to have more resources, don't be afraid. Go to christiandevans.com. You can actually schedule a phone call with me or you can send me an email at christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. That's christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. Always love to hear some feedback and let me know what is the number one or two things that you are struggling in your business and your life and we'll make sure we have those conversations. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis podcast. And until next time, remember, be uncommon if you can. Cheers.